0: Good morning. morning. On this day of worship, I invite you now to join me as we go to God in a word of prayer. God of love, we lift every praise to glorify you on this bright, sunny morning. All of creation praises you. We gather to learn how to exhibit your love as you have shown compassion for us. Thank you for all you have done for us. Lord, we love you. We love your creation. We love your ministry. We love your care for your people. We love your resurrection. We pray that you will help us learn how to better love. And as we grow, strengthen that love, as we journey into areas and places where it becomes harder for us to love as you would have us love. Remind us of our transgressions and humble us with our need for growth. Give us joy in your promises and hope in your resurrection that all the world may experience your love. Your calling to Peter, your message after your resurrection, was that if he loved you, he must tend your sheep. In all areas where we need amending, learning, teaching, and shaping, Lord, mold our love of other people to reflect your spirit Give us eyes to see areas of need, areas of pain, areas of disparity, as you would see all areas where people suffer. Let us see as you do. Give us mouths to sing and to speak Jesus over them in our actions and in our love for you. Give us hands to act and to change that we may meet the needs of those who suffer in your stead as your ambassadors within this place and as we go out in all the world May we speak our love of Jesus in all the work that we do. Amen.
3: I should be on yes there we are um it's been a morning uh for yates uh, for those who had not heard over in the koinonia class one of the members of that class had a health episode and it was very scary uh, to behold and was sort of coming in and out so if you saw the emergency vehicles uh, they were tending to that and they've transported alfred to the hospital with some company and will continue to keep you posted as as we know updates as you know being at duke and being in our prayers is that amazing intersection of amazing health care and amazing grace. And I want you to know in times like this, my heart uh, not only kind of offers its own prayers out of, out of my own life, but then also recognizing the deep friendships that exist in this place, the long standing relationships. It goes way beyond any superficial affection. There are bonds of love and spiritual companionship that have been forged over decades. So my care is with all of us today as we turn now to a place in Scripture, listening for another assurance, another promise of a gift that comes by way of the resurrected Jesus in these weeks of Easter tending to the special ways that Jesus not only returns to his disciples, but brings them gifts or assurances or challenges or mandates. Today, it is an incredible gift, the gift of restoration. And we'll see it through the lens of a particular relationship between Jesus and Peter. But it is, of course, not just for Jesus and for Peter, This is a word for all of us. In John chapter 21, we'll be reading verses 15 through 19. John 21, verses 15 through 19. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. all things you know that I love you Jesus said feed my sheep very truly I tell you when you were younger you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted but when you are old you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God Then he said to him, follow me. May God bless the reading and the hearing of the word today. Well, our theme word today is a word that is popular enough in our culture. It's restoration. And when we talk about restoration, the first place my mind goes is that of houses. And and those sorts of restorations... Come at many levels. It has become very popular, particularly in a city like this where properties don't stay in inventory very long, to find something that's under distress and then kind of make some superficial changes, make it look pretty again. Maybe don't take too deep a look kind of at the foundation or anything and uh, make it pretty enough so that a naive buyer could come, pay your asking price, and, and you reap those gains, right? It's called flipping. And those who are really capable at flipping, have been able to make pretty good living out of noticing those properties that they can fix up in a hurry, turn around, resell, and make some money, and then invest in more property, so on and so forth. So that's one level of restoration, but I'm here to tell you, as someone who bought a fixer-upper, I don't have that in my DNA. Uh, When Janelle and I bought a house uh, a couple of houses ago, uh, we saw it in terms of its potential. And this is a great place for us to get our foot in the door, um, and with a little work here and a little work there, make a difference. And I learned a couple of things. One, you're never done restoring. It's an ongoing process. And two, it is virtually impossible to restore and refurbish and remodel a home you actually live in no wonder it is so tempting just to burn it to the ground and start with new construction no wonder we're always led to those things that are brand new untouched untarnished and we just rather start from scratch but life isn't that way most of the time for most of us when we get out of the, the land of or the 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 uh idea of real estate And we look at the things that matter to us today our lives, our relationships, and the paths we take in this world. We find ourselves tempted, but never really able to cut ties with everywhere we've been and everything we've done and everything we said and just start fresh every day to make new friends, to find a new job, to reestablish ourselves in a brand new family. Can't be done. There has to be a way for our lives when they become bruised, dented, worn out through use or neglect for us to be able to experience something like restoration in the houses we actually occupy. We know any kind of meaningful restoration takes a lot of time. You probably remember in 2019 when the cathedral at Notre Dame Uh, burned. It was worldwide news and if there was any iconic structure in the world that would have broad-based global support for renovation and restoration it'd be Notre Dame. And it's cost hundreds of millions of euros and they're still working. It will be five years before visitors are welcomed back into Notre Dame and that's with all hands on deck all workers on board, everybody wanting to be able to put on their resume that they helped restore Notre Dame. It takes time. And then sometimes time plays a trick on us that's even more difficult. I'm talking about relationships now. Sometimes we get to a place where time has sort of run out. One of the most tragic circumstances. I remember listening to In the Life of a Friend, when she, as a young married, had to bury her husband, who died in a car accident. That, in and of itself, is enough to break a soul. But what haunted her, what she had to contend with every day, was the very last words they exchanged before he died were crosswords. This is an argument. And he left the house and never came home. What do you do when things in your life are so undone it doesn't seem like there's anything that can be done to make them right? Maybe something's been done to you or you have done it to someone else. A wrong so wrong you can't make it right. What is left for us? The risen Jesus shows us today through forgiveness. There is restoration, and with restoration, there is hope for a new future, a future that we don't go alone, but with the constant companionship of the risen Jesus. So we're going to have to backtrack a little bit before we get into the story that we share today, this interaction between Jesus and Peter. So I'm going to ask you to rewind your memory tapes far enough back to take us to Holy Week, I guess. And remember those last events between Jesus and with Peter. The meal that he shared with his disciples and the foot washing and sharing the bread and sharing the cup and Judas rushing off to betray him. Jesus giving them a new commandment that they love one another as he has loved them. Jesus telling Peter that Peter would deny him three times before the morning and Peter being very indignant about it Jesus taking a few of his disciples across the Kidron Valley to the Garden of Gethsemane. And there on the Mount of Olives, Jesus agonized in prayer and his disciples fell asleep. Judas arrives and betrays Jesus with a kiss. And he's arrested. Peter and the beloved disciple follow as the soldiers take Jesus away but they keep their distance. At this point, the soldiers would have gone back over the Kidron Valley to the house of Annas. And there, Jesus goes in as a prisoner. And that traditional site of Annas' house is a place where Christian pilgrims still travel to this day. They've built a sanctuary there where Christian worship is still held. There's a big pit in the middle of it, probably originally a cistern, but certainly very, very capable of holding a prisoner at least for a while. And as you worship in the round in that church, you look all the way down into the hole. And so that church that was built there commemorates Jesus' trial in front of the religious authorities. But the name of that church, I think, is so very telling for us. It's got a special name but I'm not going to tell you yet. John tells us in chapter 18 that Peter and the other disciple seem to have some personal connections with the high priest. And so they convince a servant girl to allow them into the courtyard. And so as they make their way through the gate, they come into the courtyard to try and get a little closer to what's happening to Jesus. It's still dark. It's not quite daybreak. And the servants and the guards on this spring night in Jerusalem have built a fire. But it's a charcoal fire, to be precise. John uses a really specific word to describe that fire. It's only used two times in the entire New Testament. It's a rare vocabulary word. So standing there by that charcoal fire, Peter is asked one time if he knows Jesus. Is he one of his followers? And Peter, of course, denies it. And he's asked again a second time there in the courtyard around the charcoal fire. Then he's asked a third time. Each time there's more certainty, there's more accusation, there's a little more menace, and a more vigorous denial from Peter. And it's all as Jesus has told him it would be. Peter, you will deny me three times before that rooster crows. Three denials and then it crows. Peter's denied Jesus three times. His master, his teacher, the one he loved, the one who loved him. Peter has denied the one that he confessed was the Messiah, the one that he confessed to be the Son of God. In John 13, verse 37, he says, Lord, why can't I follow you? I will lay down my life for you. By the charcoal fire, Peter's denied Jesus three times. When Luke tells this story, he includes another very chilling detail. In chapter 22, verse 61 of Luke, he says that as the rooster crows, quote, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. The last words Jesus hears from Peter's mouth before his own agony on the cross are those stinging words of betrayal. The church that's built to commemorate Jesus' trial is actually called the Church of St. Peter in Gallicantu. Gallicantu in Latin means cock crow. Imagine your worst personal failure. Can you think of it? Now imagine building and naming a church after it. It's a new day in John chapter 21, but it's very much the same. Similar time of day. That time between night and morning, that time when the rooster starts to crow to welcome in the sun, and John tells us that there's a charcoal fire that's burning at the seashore It's very close to where Peter and his friends, other disciples, are fishing. The risen Jesus, we know, has prepared a meal for his friends there at the seashore. He's cooking the food that he's going to serve them on a charcoal fire. Same word. And he's prepared a place for his friends. So maybe you can start to sense the tension that exists when we tell this story, that place of welcome that Jesus is preparing and the emptiness that is the theme of the disciples' life now. Their whole life is empty. It shows up even in the, the way they catch fish. Earlier in that chapter, Jesus hollers out to them on the boat, how's the fishing going? And they have caught nothing. So Jesus blesses their catch and provides more fish than they could ever imagine for themselves. And as they continue to talk across the water, the disciples do begin to understand what's happening there. And Peter reacts when his awareness is raised that that is the risen Jesus on the shore. He reacts, he jumps into the water after covering, uh, interesting detail, after covering his unmentionables, in those days, those who fished, often fished in the nude, so don't get any bright ideas this afternoon thinking you're being biblical. But he covers his nakedness, jumps in the water, begins to make his way to that one who invites him from the seashore. But I wonder what happened when he could start to smell the charcoal burning, when he could see the red bricks simmering and glowing there on the beach Jesus has recreated the setting of that memory that Peter wants to bury and hide away he's recreated that space and the vision of what confronts and torments Peter it's like returning to the scene of a crime When we talk about raking someone over the coals, what we mean by that is that we confront and torment people for making a mistake, sort of torturing them, reminding them of their failures. You know what it means to be raked over the coals. We know together what sort of pain and scars our sins and their continued presence in our lives do to us. They burn like coals from the inside out. And is that what Jesus has in mind to torment, to torture, to trigger a renewed sort of self-loathing in Peter, self-judgment? Is he trying to just break Peter down and torment him for the failure? When I needed you most, you betrayed me. There's no denying that Peter failed Jesus. And sometimes I ask myself why. I'm sure Peter asked himself that a thousand times. Why did I do that? But the very fact that Peter ran away from that first charcoal fire and weeps bitterly tells me that even as he denies Jesus, he loves him. And so his failure isn't simply about being a coward. It's it's more of a failure to love with an undivided heart. Peter is willing to deny Jesus in a sense to remain safe to feel included and he discovers that just getting along to go along does not work the others who had gathered around that first fire of glowing coals are already suspicious of him there's no warmth in their company it's only from the fire and we know what happens to fires like that eventually it turns to ashes it fades and it dies peter is never a part of that circle but he tries to to sidle up to it to ease into it to fit in to remain anonymous and he fails he fails badly three times but as jesus invites him to that second charcoal fire he calls him by name invites him to a place where he's not simply accepted or tolerated for who he is but he's also forgiven for what he's done and he's loved for who he is and he's given holy work to do to nurture others and so this morning for us too in a sense i think we are also by another charcoal fire we hear that invitation to a relationship with the risen jesus it's an invitation And just like Peter, we have to choose how we will respond. Will we respond as we remember the compassion and the mercy that God has shown us in Christ? Will that inspire us to pray that God will kindle a real fire in us? Will we be people who are committed to share that same compassion and mercy with others, especially those who, like Peter, probably don't deserve it, at least not in our eyes. I think, even in his denials, Peter was a very good religious person. Jesus was loved by Peter, even as he denied him. But what was missing until this encounter on the lake shore, I think was understanding the connection between our love of Jesus and the love of his sheep. That Jesus' love for people had no bounds. And of course, even after this moment, Peter fails from time to time in proclaiming, you know, consistently in his words and in his deeds, the boundless love of Christ. Every once in a while when we read the stories, we can see traces of Peter's old self still show up. We are all works in process. But at least the scriptures are honest about the time and the way by which we are transformed. It reminds us of nothing else, that it is by grace alone that we're able to live out the gospel of love. But still, I want you to imagine with me, with Peter, What the world and what our lives look like if we embrace the love that first embraces us. It comes to us usually when we're staring at the ash heap of our own lives, and then in all our brokenness and sinfulness, that love calls us out with a word of love and forgiveness and transformation. Not just for our lives to be restored, but to participate in the great restoration that God is doing in the world. What kind of preaching would Peter offer when he could tell others individually and even to a congregation, I betrayed my friend, my very best friend, the Son of God? He forgave me. And He'll forgive you too. None of you are irretrievably lost. None of you are unlovable. None of you are truly alone. There is a new beginning for you. Trust Jesus. Believe on the Lord Jesus and be saved. That's how Peter would say it. There's another New Testament apostle who preaches like that. We call him the Apostle Paul. Some other traditions call him Saint Paul. He went by another calling card altogether, probably something more like sinner Paul. When he greets the church in his first letter to Timothy, he greets the fellow Christians this way. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for this very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who believe in him for eternal life. So today, let the love of Christ embrace you. Jesus rose from the dead and proclaimed forgiveness of his disciples. And if we choose to receive that same gracious, forgiving love, that love that first reaches out and embraces us, it can propel us into the world to do as Peter was asked, to feed Jesus' sheep, wherever they may be, and it's possible to do this even when we recognize that sheep are not always fluffy and nice. And they're not. I'm on a mission trip years ago to Southeast Asia, one of the missionaries uh, who was showing us around had veterinary training before he went to seminary. And so a lot of what he did was in the villages, take, helping them work on their agriculture um, and to build sustainable lives there in the villages. And as we were there among the sheep one day, I saw him picking maggots, out of the horn of an infected horn of a sheep and he said one of his seminary professors or mentors once said if you're going to be a shepherd you got to get used to the smell of the sheep and it might even make you smell like sheep too that's the way it is when we get out there in the world when Jesus charges Peter and all of us to feed his sheep he's not offering that call to just a few you do not have to have rev in front of your name one of the long-standing traditions of this church is to recognize that each and every one of you are ministers my first clarifying conversation with ted reed nine years ago was when i got an email to the mom's And I said, I think you meant to send this to Janelle. He said, no, sorry, I should have explained. That stands for Ministers of Music. It's the group email that's sent out to every person who sings or plays or participates in the group. You're all ministers, wherever you go, every single one of you. And Jesus wants us to do this, not simply in his name, but also in the same spirit, with the same forgiving love, that transformed another charcoal fire into a place of welcome for the sorriest of the sheep. And from that place of forgiveness, we can reach out to others, knowing that we too know what it's like to be lost and then found. We've been found. And we must find others to share Christ's love in every way that is possible. Saying, just like Peter did, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. But don't let that be enough. Don't let that be the conclusion of our worship today. Instead, in our time of response, let us listen for Jesus' voice calling to us, Feed my sheep. Follow me. Amen.